0: to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of OnScript, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We appreciate you tuning in to this podcast. We're a collective of biblical scholars and theologians who work together because we think that biblical studies and theology belong together and that they can illuminate. These are two fields that can illuminate one another. And so, we try to do that in different ways in this podcast while also attending to history and culture. So, uh, thanks to all of you who listen and support the podcast regularly. Um, through donations we appreciate those of you who give regularly and that enables us to support uh, to sustain what we're doing uh, but also to grow and build some new initiatives some of which will be rolling out in the new year so stay tuned for those Um, also now if you hadn't had a chance to give us a rating on itunes or wherever you listen please do so Um, thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode Welcome to OnScript.
1: Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Garrick Allen, who is currently an associate professor in New Testament studies at Dublin City University, Um, uh, but he is soon to be an associate professor at the University of Glasgow, uh, upcoming this next term, I assume. Is that correct, Garrick? From December, about a month from From, now. Oh, from December. Okay, so very soon. Um, and uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about his research project on paratext and uh, manuscripts. And this a lot of this will be related directly to his Oxford University Press book called Manuscripts of the Book of Revelation, New Philology, Paratext, and Receptions. Welcome, Dr. Garrick Allen. Thanks very much, Drew. Good to be here. Okay, so first things first, um, can you tell us how you got into paratext, and maybe you might want to start with just a thumbnail sketch of what do you mean when you say paratext?
2: Yeah. So um, first, thanks for having me on OnScript. Um, uh, Michelle Obama was working very hard to get me onto her podcast, but I've been too busy. So this is—it's um, uh, a pleasure to come on and be with you. We we actually poached you. It we happens. Them. Yeah, like you can't have him. He's off. You got to. You have to make choices. Yeah, so I came <laughs> uh it, it, you know, I came into thinking about paratexts and manuscripts kind of through the back door. Um, you know, my doctoral work was on the book of Revelation and its composition uh in the first century in the context of early Jewish textual culture. And so I was working with a lot of different you know, text forms of the Old Testament, so uh different Greek versions, the Masoretic text, these sorts of questions. And it led me naturally to think um, about the manuscripts. Uh, and so as a postdoctoral researcher in Germany, uh, I was part of a team that was making a new Greek critical edition of the book of Revelation. And so my job was to sit and read manuscripts and to transcribe them all day. Uh, and so when you do that, you have a chance to sit and read, uh, read the stuff. You see things that you didn't know existed. You see things, uh, that you, you don't know what they are. What is this, uh, little note here? What are all these numbers here? What are these different things doing? And so spending time reading the manuscripts, which at the time uh, felt very, very boring, uh, very monotonous, very unrewarding, was actually uh, what kind of led to my next sort of uh, group of research projects and and stuff I've been working on is just a chance to sit and read the manuscripts. It was very valuable uh, uh, in the long run. So I kind of came to it in an uh, an organic sort of way. So you actually came to this by just
1: basically doing spade work for a translation? Is that is that fair to say?
2: Exactly. Yeah, for an edition. So um, uh, there's a team in Wuppertal, Germany, led by Martin Kerrer, who is rebuilding from the ground up uh, a new Greek critical edition of the Book of Revelation. Some of these editions in this series have come out uh, for Acts and the Catholic Epistles. The Book of Revelation should be out in. I don't know, five to 10 years, something like this, but they going all the way back to the manuscripts and starting, starting from the ground up. And so I was lucky to be a part of that for a few years uh, to make a very small contribution to the interesting work they're doing there. So just sitting uh, in my office, uh, reading manuscripts on my screen and transcribing their texts into a transcription editor. That's all I did. (laughs) So these are all digital images of the the manuscripts. I take. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, You know, there's less Greek manuscripts of the book of Revelation than other New Testament works. Um, But, you know, over 300, you still need, it's a pretty long, long text. You still need to uh, work in digital spaces to actually do this in any reasonable amount of time.
1: Right. And so I I wonder, I I hear from my doctor friends that to learn to read an x-ray, you basically just look at hundreds of x-rays and then with someone over your shoulder kind of saying, hey, pay attention to this ignore that. This is, this is how you figure out subtle things in x-rays. It was, there's something like that going on in your mind. You're seeing, you know, there's, there's just the, the work of actually transliterating, uh, or, or, um, moving over into digital form, the text, but are you beginning to see subtle differences? I like what I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this became interesting because obviously it became a massively interesting project here. Yeah. Uh, um... Oh, hold on. Before we do that, can we just real quickly say,
2: Paratext, what do you mean when you say paratext? Oh, good, yeah. So paratext, I mean everything, at least to me, there's some discussion about where a paratext ends and other features start, but it's everything in, with, and around a text uh, itself. So uh, if you take a a printed Bible off the shelf, it's the table of context, the legal front matter, the editor's prefaces, the chapter and verse numbers, the little section titles, everything except for the main text of the work itself this differs whether it's a manuscript, a printed book, a digital text, uh, of course. And that's part of the fun is as book technology changes, paratext changes well. Yeah, and is it fair to say that,
1: you know, for our, most of our interactions with books today, um, paratext has basically been stripped down as lean as it can possibly get. Um, and, and you're dealing with uh, a whole different world of paratext, uh, in ancient manuscripts.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you pick up a printed book, most of them are designed to sell copies of that book. So the blurbs on the back, the author's bio that makes them seem all, uh, very smart and wonderful and well-traveled and intelligent, all these things, you know, it's all around selling copies. Um, but in, in the ancient but not world, cri- not Christian books, of course, right? Those are, I important. mean, as, as can I say, especially Christian books? Uh, I mean, I mean, think of think of all the different, um, you know, English translations that come off the shelf, the Green Bible, the Children's Bible, the Women's Bible Study book, the American Tough Guy Man Bible or whatever it is, you know, the texts don't change. Uh, It's the paratexts that do. It's the color of the script, the arrangement of these things, the way you frame it to the reader and paratexts are important because they are this sort of liminal space, this threshold that negotiate the text to the reader. They're the the things that we can't ignore when we go to the text and they change the way that we think about it and the way that we interpret these texts based on these sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, so this is, this is, this is the sort of stuff that I've been thinking about. And it- I'm sorry, I'm going to get off on
1: a tangent here, but uh, but even you saying that, uh, my first when I became a Christian as an adult, the first Bible I got was a Life, life Application Bible, and, and to this day, I still think about certain passages that struck me for the first time in the physical space of that Life App. Like I can still see where you know how far down the page the notes were and which side of the page it's on, and and I often actually I use the same translation in my classes today because I know where on the page all the passages are that I want to go to. Is that included in a
2: pair of texts? Yes, absolutely. Features? I would. Some people wouldn't. I would include all the different, um, uh, you know, physical features. What the manuscript is made out of—is it paper, parchment, papyrus, whatever? How it's bound? Some of its codicological features. How the text is arranged on the page? Um, how the text is divided into different segments? I would include a lot of these sort of physical features uh, within that, and in some of these life application bibles is really interesting. You have a table at the back that will say, like, if you're feeling bereaved, you know, read this passage. If you're, uh, you know, if you're struggling with whatever, read this passage. And some of these features go back to medieval Byzantine manuscripts as well. You see some of these things uh, in uh, in, in some of these other materials. So some of the paratexts of modern Bibles are made up by editors and people who want to sell them. Um, but some of them go back to, uh, ha- have this really long, interesting, rich tradition. Uh, so it's not, it's not all a cheap trick to, to sell copies. Although I imagine that that's, that's, that's part of part of the, part of the poll. Can I say, I just love your cynicism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, well,
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's not without warrant in in many cases. So
2: yeah, I went, I, uh, I gave a talk at our church's. um, Bible study when we were still meeting in person, uh, last year. And, and one of the questions the pastor asked me is why are there, you know, why are there different translations of the Bible? And my answer was, cause people like to make money. Uh, and that was not the the answer he was looking for. Uh, but that's.
1: Yeah. I, I, I have learned the hard way that I can't give that answer cold anymore. And in, in most contexts, you just have to say, well, um, there, you know, the New York times, specifically takes the bible off the best selling list because you know it outsells everything so yeah anyways all right we we won't go down that road um because yeah, because there were very expensive manuscripts uh, that were that were made. You're working on a particular manuscript, right? I, I have this note. It's W139. What does that mean, and why are you working on that manuscript?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. So the one for one of my projects, I'm focusing in on one really beautiful deluxe uh, 12th century Byzantine gospel codex that's at the Chester Beatty uh, here in Dublin. So one of the first things I did when I came to Dublin four years ago was to do my best to make friends with the wonderful people at the Chester Beatty and to look at some of their, uh, some of their biblical manuscripts. So they're, you know, world renowned for the papyri they have, the probably the earliest copy of Paul's letters, probably the first example of all the gospels in one book together and the earliest full copy of the book of Revelation. But they also have, uh, a set of, uh, really beautiful illuminated Byzantine manuscripts, lectionaries, and this one big Gospel codex that no one has ever done any significant work on, as far as I can tell. Uh, so uh, I got to know it, and uh, it. What's interesting about it in this context is it has all four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—but you know each folio only has twenty lines of text from each Gospel, but at least forty to fifty lines of other material on the upper, lower and outer margins. So commentary sounds very Talmudic. Yes. Yeah. It's very, it's very complicated layout. So it has this frame commentary of extracts from ancient Christian interpreters. It has multiple cross-referencing systems. It has, uh, uh, the system for uh, that allows you to read the specific texts within the Byzantine liturgical year. It has different titles and subtitles. It has multiple segmentation systems. Uh, it has uh, many corrections. A prayer written in the margin of one folio by a guy called Peter calls himself Peter the Shoemaker. Uh, so you have a whole range of really interesting features that you can't ignore. You really have to work hard to read the gospels from beginning to end and ignore all this other material that's in with and around the text, uh, in this way. So it's paratextuality really, at least to my eye is the focal point, uh, of this, of this manuscript. So, uh, it's, it's taken up some of my time over the last few years. And,
1: you know, even as you said that, um, you know, you can think of like our, our, um, The a student, Cartentia, the uh, yeah, the BHS, yeah, yeah, BHS. yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or the NA 28, like, uh, tons of paratext going on in there, uh, mainly for facilitating certain types of study. Um, but the more, the more I think about it, the more instances I think about the kind of, for lack of a better word, the naive Protestant, just me in the Bible, and that's all I need. I'm trying to think of an instance where it really is just you and the Bible in the way that you might intend it in that statement um, and not actually you and the Bible as presented to you by the uh, the manufacturer of that Bible uh, with the paratext that accommodate how you understand it as well. Is that, is that fair?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, critical editions like BHS and, you know, the Nestle-Alland editions and other ones are, you know, really complex and powerful tools for facilitating you know the understanding of these texts in the, in whatever context it is we 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 come to them but they distill things and in the process you lose the singularity the complexity the interesting features of all these thousands of manuscripts that exist out there and so when you get a step behind the editions and you look at the manuscripts themselves the complexity just hits you uh, almost on every folio of of many of these Uh, of of these artifacts. And so one of the arguments I tried to make in my book uh, that came out this year on the manuscripts of the book of Revelation is to make the case that, you know, the book of Revelation is not uh, some disembodied ideal text floating around that we can reconstruct from the first century or how it looks in modern Bibles. It's really comprised of every one of these individual witnesses to this text, both manuscripts, critical editions, modern translations, that make up the real substance of what the book of Revelation is. It's a really complicated uh, book, uh, just in terms of its content, but translated to us from antiquity through hundreds of different cultures, written down by uh, hundreds of different scribes, uh, annotated by hundreds of different readers, uh, and all of these complex interactions – have, you know, give us what the work is today. And so that's uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is to see this constant interplay between um, scripture as it appears to different communities and the people who, you know, shape, transmit, pass on, copy, rework these traditions in many different ways, both their text and their paratexts from antiquity to today. So for me, it undermines this idea that, uh, you know, Uh, You can get your English Bible and sit alone and, you know, uh, that that is just the Bible and me. I think the Bible is much more complicated. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with reading a modern translation for doing all sorts of things. That's good. Those are, you know, powerful tools that people use that are uh, relevant and important and, you know, have their own sort of complicated history. Um, But there's a real richness that stands behind that, that we should pay more attention to, and historically has been really underappreciated in the history of scholarship, uh, and not understood by many people, even, you know, professional New Testament scholars. So there's a real, uh, at least to my mind value to looking behind this, uh, behind the books that we use to the material that stands behind them. And, you know, um, uh, if you're interested in this, come, come to Glasgow and do a PhD with me. Cause there are, I think hundreds of different projects that that can uh, illuminate uh, some of these questions from different directions.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 wondering the the question I have in mind is basically um, is the paratext hermeneutical in some way? And I don't know if that question is just stating what you think is obvious or is pushing way beyond what you think. So, is is the paratext hermeneutical in some ways? Is it is, does it create a, a specific hermeneutical lens? that changes our understanding of the, the text on the page.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it does. I think every paratext, you know, has at least the ones that are directly related to the text that they're attached to uh, absolutely have uh, hermeneutical functions. Um, I mean, take, for example, uh, the Eusebian apparatus for the gospels that exists in this manuscript of the Chester Beatty Western collection uh, 139 that I've been working on. It, it, it's comprised of a series of features, but it allows you to, um, flip between related pericope in the gospels as Eusebius, the Bishop of, uh, uh, of Caesarea from the fourth century perceived it. So already in antiquity, there are people who are dealing with the problem of, we have four gospels. They're very similar, but also very different. And this system acknowledges their similarities by connecting you know, the connected passages as Eusebius perceives it, but it also has to acknowledge the big differences between them. And so it's this really complex cross-referencing system that helps us to, you know, gives us a new vantage points to read the gospels in relationship to one another. Uh, And so uh, that has obvious uh, hermeneutical uh, possibilities. Same with commentary and catena that uh, excerpt different commentary traditions Uh, from different ancient Christian authors and just juxtapose them next to the text to which they think they comment on. So that changes the way we engage these texts when we look at them in these particular documents. Um, So, uh, you know, I think these are obviously hermeneutical. And even things like uh, like prayers written in the lower margin uh, of this manuscript by Peter the Shoemaker who prays for his wife Anastasia and their children, that gives us a sort of historical hermeneutic to show that other people like us who will probably be lost to history are uh, engaging with these texts in different ways. It gives us insight into, um, the, uh, you know, religious and ritual significance of some of these features. And so I think that there's relevance for, for, for almost every paratextual, uh, feature that I, that you could think of.
1: Yeah. And, and we'll post, uh, this is a difficult discussion because I'm actually looking at, at, at uh, images of these texts as you're saying these
2: things. Um, so we'll post pictures of those uh, in the show notes. They are free online at the Chester Beatty website. You can download PDFs to fiddle around with. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty
1: amazing. And um, I think anybody who's actually stood in the physical presence of an illuminated Bible or the, anything from the book of Kells or anything like that, um, you realize that pictures never do full justice uh, to the actual artifact either. Um, and so I, I, I wonder, okay, well, let's just be honest. Um, for Let's just talk about Americans. Like your average American uh, with their aesthetic sensibilities is going to look at something like an illuminated volume and they're just going to go like, oh, it has pretty pictures. Like, oh, uh, um, I wonder maybe if I could make a crass comparison, what is the difference between this and a children's Bible, you know, a children's Bible that might have um, pictures for illumination? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you hear that all the time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, the I, I'll say this, like they serve different purposes. There's a, you know, there's a long history of, uh, of illuminating biblical texts in many different cultures and languages, you know, and it, goes on unabated today in things like children's Bibles. But the, you know, the artistic features of this manuscript in particular are really fine tuned and really specific. So the colors used link, uh, the different paratexts from the epistle to Carpianus that starts it to the different prefatory texts to the headpieces for each of the gospels. It links these texts through the use of color and design, uh, 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 across the whole book. So if it's not clear enough, just by juxtaposing them in the same codex that these all things go together, you can trace the use of gold ink from uh, the evangelist portraits to um, you know, the um, chapter uh, tables of contents for each gospel through to the title for each gospel through to the end title that appears uh, on each. And so it's not just this arbitrary uh, you know, use of beauty just to make the text nicer and more, you know, prettier and uh, you know, more, more nicer to look at, but it, it, there's a hermeneutical function to uh, the way that the artistic design of this manuscript is put together to my mind at least. So it reinforces this idea that scripture and tradition are deeply connected. That tradition is the lens through which uh, we engage scripture and, and, and one of the most interesting things about the paratexts of this manuscript is that the you know, paratexts are everywhere, but almost none of them were probably written by the person or people who wrote the Gospels. Uh, you know, the titles, the cross referencing systems, the images, none of these things were there in the earliest papyri. You know, some of the, titles, the very pared down titles were. But that's it. These are all the products of tradition that, you know, allow scripture to remain relevant and engageable uh, uh, over time. And I think children's Bibles do the same thing. One of the things they try to do is to, you know, allow children to enter the world of the text or at least the nice parts of the text. Uh, And so, you know, fair enough. You don't want you don't want to read about the Levite's concubine to your daughter at bedtime. Um, I mean I did but but yeah, yeah maybe someday maybe someday yeah. but i think I think there's a similar function here uh you know uh, and for me it's just further evidence that um you know as one of my uh scholarly idols David Parker uh, has said that scripture is tradition and tradition is this lens through which we we engage scripture. And so that in the paratext and in the manuscript, we get these concrete points in time where these two things come together and impinge on one another in, um, in in really interesting ways. So working with the manuscripts in this sense makes me um, nervous about a Bardian sort of uh, sense of sense of, of what scripture is as a sort of, you know, disembodied authoritative text uh, because the authority of these texts are always um, you know, it intervened by these other features. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to that question
1: that I kind of skipped over at the beginning is how, what was the initial, like, was there a moment in epiphany or a slow burgeoning, uh, change in you that went from, uh, transliterating text to all of a sudden, like, Hey, wait a second, there's something interesting here. What, what happened in that moment?
2: I mean, it's just a matter of looking like, like you said, uh, earlier on, it is like looking at an x-ray. You just read it over and over again. Now, when we transcribed on this project, we were transcribing from templates. So we just had to adjust the base text. So we weren't writing it all out from scratch. It's much, much quicker this way. But when you're doing that, you see that there are hermeneutical choices at every level of creating a critical edition. You know, uh, how do you interpret ligatures or signs where multiple letters are combined into a different sign? Uh, how do you um, you know, many, because Greek is an inflected language, many of the endings of the nouns just the scribes just don't copy them because they assume you know what case they're in. So how do you do you do you assume this is a dative or an accusative? How do you know uh what what the scribe intended here? So there's choices at every level. So that was illuminating for me. But also every time I came to uh specifically Revelation 13, 18, the number of the beast passage, um there, there, was a series of marginal notes uh, about the identity of the beast. Often, you know, stealing thoughts from Irenaeus or people like this. But a number of um, late medieval, post Byzantine um, manuscripts uh, identified the beast as Muhammad or the Ottomans or other people like this. So this just, uh, for me, you know, flipped a switch that said. All of these different things that you're seeing are instances of reception history, that the transmitting a text is an interpretive act. You know, And even when we create these editions, we're making a whole series of interpretations at the very basic level. So you see it in the details of the text and how the scribe copied, but also in these other uh, uh, you know, features and random notes and uh, you know, ideas that show up in the margins of some of these manuscripts. Um, so when you were working on that, the, the number
1: of the beast passages, did you find anything in any of these margins that mentions either Nikolai or, uh, monster energy drink?
2: (laughs) I could go for a monster energy drink right about now. I actually mention it. Uh, no, uh, no, no, definitely not. Um, there's a whole range of, there's a whole range. There's lists of 15 different options. Some are, You know, sobriquets like um, unrighteous lamb, the letters of unrighteous lamb in Greek add up to 666. Uh, Sometimes specific Ottoman sultans uh, are named sometimes, uh, you know, a a, a rough translation of a number one. Another one would be rough writer, which I liked in particular. But there's this whole list of, uh, you know, because Greek letters have numerical values. So if the words add up to 666, throw it in the list. Uh, type thing. So scholars, I mean, do the same thing. We all think now that it refers to Nero Caesar, who's a name in Greek adds up to 666. But everyone is looking for a future eschatological figure of some sort uh, in these margins. No one's looking back to the first century. So we're still doing the same procedure and trying to understand this passage, but looking in the opposite direction. And everybody's an amateur kabbalist, apparently. Too. Exactly. That's. I mean, that's exactly right. That's exactly what's happening here. When the text asks you to decode a name based on its numerical value, it gives you license to play play around a little bit. Um, so we're going to switch into a speed round here. So just ask you some
1: simple questions uh, for simple simple answers to kind of get into your your mind. Um, it's a scary place. What- I know. Well, I hope so. I know you, <laughs> you study with Bill Tooman. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and, and uh, yeah, well, I'll leave it there. I, I know there are some dark corners in your psyche. Uh, if you study <laughs> with Bill. Um, okay. So what, uh, biblical or theological work has had maybe the
2: deepest impact on you as a thinker early in your career or even now? Uh, I think one of the most foundational ones for me was David Parker's, the living text of the Gospels." 1998 Cambridge University Press, like 110 pages long. Uh, and, uh, it, it opened, it opened, uh, a whole lot of possibilities for me when it comes to working, 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 working with the manuscripts and engaging some of this stuff. I mean, uh, on, on another track, I know it's supposed to be speed round, but I'll go off a little bit, uh, uh, on another track when my work with early Jewish literature and the new Testament in that context, uh, I think a lot of George Brooks works. He's more of an essayist uh, than a book writer, um, but a lot of George Brooks' work along this line was very um, influential. Influential for me, so George Brook and David Parker, I think, are are, are two at the top. I, I don't know George Brooke. Can
1: you give me a, a thumbnail of what he does and what why it was influential?
2: Yeah. So George Brooke was uh, was at the University of Manchester for years. is recently retired, uh, but he has worked a lot on the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, ancient Jewish and early Christian interpretations. So, you know, thinking about the New Testament as a sort of species of early Jewish literature, which it is to my mind, uh, I know you would agree with that. So that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's nice. So George has really, you know, set, set a course for a whole series of studies from multiple people that look at this look at this material. He also edited a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls fragments, uh, the exegetical works and things like this. So for me, he's very influential. Excellent.
1: Did, did you, you, I know you've listened to OnScript at least once before. Did you hear the episode with Wave Nunnally? No, I didn't. I missed it. It, it might be one of the most exciting OnScript episodes ever. <laughs> okay. But it, about two thirds of the way through the, that interview, you, i you figure out he's the dude who brought the Mac down into the basement and, and pieced together all the, um, the concordances to decode uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls outside of that circle Yep. in the 1980s. Yep, um, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And the guy, and the guy is great. Like he's, you know, part of a rock, you know, like, was in the hospital with Leonard Skinner praying for all of them when they bust. Cry. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's, a, it's one of our most overlooked episodes. That's uh, wild. So. I had to go
2: back. I'll do it on my walk yeah. tonight. I'll go back and I'll go back and those guys who sit though with the unidentified fragments and try to piece them together based on little fragments of text and little tears in the parchment and, uh, all these things. These guys are, uh, the unsung heroes who make biblical scholarship for the rest of us, uh, Possible, so yeah. Th- these are my these are my heroes. I I often think about that. How uh, you know?
1: It, it, speaking of paratexts, like just how often I just uh, I'm opening my Hebrew Bible or my my Greek eclectic uh, edition, and how much work went into every single. How many years of expertise goes into every single page or a lexicon, you know and. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think we're all relying on uh, the paratext and that paratext is, is indicative of deep tradition. Um, That's right. So Absolutely. That. Absolutely. That's right. Okay. So if you weren't doing this job right now, what would you be doing instead?
2: Uh, I would be probably a high school teacher and a baseball coach. Wow. Baseball. Yeah. Well, where are you from originally? I'm from, I'm from Snohomish, Washington. Uh, okay. go, go Panthers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, I played baseball growing up. And when I was, when I lived in Germany as a postdoc, I, I joined the, the third German baseball league, uh, and played for the, Vuper, played for the Vupertall Stingrays for a couple years. So uh, I, I do love I'm, I, like I am this. lost for words. What position do you excel in? I played a lot. I played a lot of shortstop, uh, wow. but I'm a so little you're serious. Yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little more out of shape now than I was. So I probably... Probably, probably switch over to first base. I imagine.
1: Okay, real talk. I'm, I'm, if there's anybody who even likes me out there, they're going to hate me after this. I can't. I just can't do it. Like I played it in little league, and all I remember is standing in the grass for hours at a time. But and I, uh, it wasn't until I was in seminary, and I had a friend, uh, Dan Shipes, who who used to play for like Montreal Expos farm league. He was a pitcher. We went to a St. Louis Cardinals game. And he sat there and explained to me everything that was going on, you know, all the invisible stuff. And I could, I was beside myself of how complex, I mean, you know, there's things going on. I mean, you know, there's signals and stuff, but I just hadn't, I had no idea. Right. It's just like a whole world within a world, within a real world. Exactly. And only a little bit's on the surface. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I, 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 felt sufficiently shame for my being <laughs> such an ignoramus who dismissed it. I still don't like watching it, but, um, that's okay. I, no I, worries. I, I admire the sports. There's not uh, a lot of so. baseball
2: in Ireland, uh, or Scott or Scotland for that matter. So, you know, uh, I have should heard, try Shinty. Have you ever heard of Shinty? I've been, I've been trying to get my kids into uh, my daughters into Gaelic football and camogie and all the Irish sports. Uh, but you know, uh, under the circumstances, that's not happening.
1: Yeah. And, and the good thing about playing those, uh, Scottish and Irish sports is dental care is free there. So exactly. I, I you'll need it. What's one of your favorite works of fiction?
2: Uh, I love, I love Hemingway. Uh, you know, uh, uh, for who, for whom the bell tolls and I'm kind of a, and, and I'm a Kurt Vonnegut fan. So Slaughterhouse-Five was one of the first real novels I read as a high school student that was, uh, Uh, important for me. And it informs a lot of my, at least my political, my political thinking.
1: Yeah. See, you got that little dark side. I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not fooled by all the bright and cheery language. Um, So speaking, leaning into the dark side, uh, who or what situation do you avoid at SBL annual meetings that are in person and not on zoom?
2: Oh, Oh, I'm definitely avoiding SBL on zoom period. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. love you SBL, but man, $300 to sit on zoom for a couple of days is not my, yeah. not my cup of tea. Um, I, I try to avoid as many papers as possible. Uh, not because I don't like to hear them, but because I think it's probably the least important part of the meeting. Uh, I think connecting with people, uh, trying out ideas, uh, having fun with, with other people, uh, with your peers, I think is, is, uh, is actually more important for those, those type of things. So I'll go see my friends and a couple papers that look really interesting, but I mostly, uh, wander the book halls and try to chat people up.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, I think the most common answer, uh, that I get from just about everybody who's not a grad student. Uh, that, that that's also a sign that, um, um, that you you feel stable in your career where you can just wander (laughs) around
2: (laughs) i don't i don't have many other signs that way but i i mean i would like to skip my own papers uh yeah oh yeah i would like to be disembodied from my own speaking voice if at all possible so
1: the the greatest thing that happened to me is that i i no longer had to give papers in order to go so oh Uh, see that is that you've arrived when that's the case totally i've totally arrived <laughs> um also I think I should have papers worth giving, but I never do. Um the uh name a product or service that you love so much that you'd be a spokesperson for free. And don't and nothing baseball related. Okay. Ooh. Ooh, that's a good question. Oh, hey, oh if you want, you can give us a baseball one, but we want a non baseball one.
2: No, no, so. no, 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 no. Let me think. Um yeah. Oh, this is a this is a tricky one. Um, okay. I love, um, this is, this is going to sound strange, but the most comfortable pair of shoes I've ever owned is this pair of leather Ugg boots that I bought last year. It's very cold here. They're waterproof. I walk, I walk to the bus before the pandemic. I would walk to the bus every day and it was a good long cold walk, but these Ugg boots are so comfortable. These brown leather boots that it's just like wearing a cloud. So, I would, I, I feel like we need to post a picture of these boots. <laughs> you should. Yeah. So Tom Brady and I can
1: be, um, spokespeople for Uggs. Yeah. The only Ugg boots I can think of are the ones like the girls wear, you know, they wear tights and Uggs. Is that what you're doing? The tights and I Uggs? I
2: mean, it's, uh, you know, I, you probably, your listeners probably don't want to see me in tights. Um, but, uh, you know, jeans, jeans jeans, and Uggs, they're, they're little, they're a little more masculine than the, the, well, I promise you this, Eric.
1: If you put on some tights and Uggs, I will post the picture for you for free.
2: Yeah, I, okay. I'm, I mean, I'm comfortable enough with myself to wear Uggs, so um, I'm happy to do that. The other thing, I thought of one more thing real quick is I love um, uh, the best scrambled eggs uh, I make is with this Lodge cast iron pan. That is something, that is something worth repping also. Absolutely. I, I
1: just finally bought a cast iron pan a few months ago oh and man it takes a little work but once
2: it's there it's oh, there yeah.
1: my wife is so annoyed with how much i'm into it <laughs> <laughs> so i fully i fully appreciate that um what's uh what's something and this will be the last speed round question uh what's something you find most troubling or challenging about the bible
2: i mean so much so much of it um I, I, it's hard. It's hard to know where we One of the things that always troubles me is the, the sort of flippant popular interpretations of really ambiguous texts. So, um, particularly of the New Testament letters. Um, you know, when you're reading Paul, you're reading one half of a conversation, and to say you think you knew what Paul meant unambiguously is really challenging for me. Particularly when, within the tradition, you see a whole range of legitimate interpretive, uh, possibilities. And I think being able to acknowledge the polyphony of, of the Bible is something that is, uh, would, would be very valuable in a whole lot of contexts. So I'm, am a, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, uh, kind of guy. So I like, I like that sort of thing. Um, but I don't have a lot of interest in, do writing an exegetical essay arguing for one particular interpretation of a text. So not that that's bad to do. I just, I just am not, I just don't find it invigorating in the same way.
1: You, you've also got a project, which I found this interesting only because I couldn't even imagine how this was a project. So um, <laughs> you've got a project on on another paratext issue, which is the, the titles of the gospels or the titles that are attributed to the gospels. Um, can you, can you explain how you turn? I, I'm saying that very naively, and I know everything's always more complicated than I think it is. Uh, but I can imagine a lot of people hear that and go like, how is that even a, a funded project?
2: What is Exactly. That? Exactly. So this project is funded by the European Research Council, um, uh, and it's, it's on the titles of the New Testament. So its acronym is TINT. You always have to have a cool acronym. These sorts of things. But, um, I mean, yeah, the question is like we already know what the titles of the new Testament works are. There's 27 of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, all the way down the line. Um, but the problem is in the manuscripts is these works don't always have the same title. You know, there's traditional structures. So like the gospel of Mark is never the gospel of Chad or something like this. Um, but there's a whole range of different titles that exist in these manuscripts, at least seven or eight different forms. And so, the book of Revelation, for example, uh, as I discussed in one of the chapters of my book, there's only 300 manuscripts, but it has 56 different titles wow. in those Greek. Can, can, you, can you give us a flavor of a, a few of those titles? Yeah, so they go from everything from Apocalypse to Apocalypse of John to Apocalypse of John, the Holy Virgin Evangelist uh to uh the apocalypse of john written on patmos to the apocalypse of john what he saw on patmos and a whole range of different things like this so you know they draw from um commentary traditions and other sorts of things but uh you know some of these talk about um the elusive networks between the johannine corpus for example they talk about uh the location and date uh, when it was written. They talk uh, about uh, you know what the word apocalypse means sometimes. And these things change the way that you come to the text, I think. And so the goal for our project is to digitally edit every form of every title in every New Testament manuscript, and to use this material to answer a whole range of critical questions like, um Uh, the importance of scribes in transmitting this, the reception historical value of these things, uh, the elusive network of some of these things. So we have a whole range of critical questions uh, me and the team uh, are going to be looking at. So, you know, although we know we can colloquially say say that, you know, Matthew is Matthew, uh, that's not always the case. The subscription to Matthew in W139 is a, a, Uh, Is a good example. Says the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, you know, written uh, what is it, eight years after Christ's ascension in Jerusalem in the Hebrew language, tells you, you know, you have to think that all of a sudden now Matthew, in that I'm reading Greek, is an interpret a translation. So this changes the way you engage with these texts, and it changes from culture to culture. It changes with book technology, and uh, you even see in some, you know, early modern. Um, manuscripts, really effusive titles for some of these authors that are, I think, implicit pushbacks against the, you know, the onset of, you know, the historical critical scholarship in Europe and some of these things. So you see a whole range of uh, of particular questions we can use this information for.
1: Well, Dr. Garrick Allen, thank you very much for your time and thank you for uh, this discussion rooted in this book, manuscripts of the Book of Revelation, uh, and teaching us.